cool. All right? Cool. No, I understand. I just, I just got to leave now, man. So please get out of my way. We haven't finished the movie. Call me about that next week, please, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. You're sit in that chair, and we're going to watch this movie. And then I'm going to make you a proposal. Come on. Very, 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 very boiling Saturday afternoon, and we're here yeah. to talk about a truly awesome film. Although we always say that, but this time we're not lying. Well, I, I'm glad you liked it. Sorry to bother you. 2018, Boots no, Riley. Okay. No, Sorry to Bother You is the name of the film, not to Sorry to Bother You with the film. Oh, it was no bother at all. Uh, yeah okay what where where are we yes anyway the film sorry to bother you so you liked it then mate yeah i thought it was great i think that's one of the uh, best films i've ever seen (laughs) wow well that's wonderful to hear um so it's 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 even better than joe versus the volcano uh okay good that's that's a good thing i guess it is but no seriously it was uh i just thought it was um, excellent on all um, all fronts. Uh, beautifully shot. Really, really good um, performance and script, and uh, just everything it was like a th- cathedral of talent. And um, yeah, uh, I really liked it. So um, we run a sci-fi and philosophy podcast, um, and you hadn't seen this film before. So when yeah. I asked you to watch it, did it take you? Uh, till the last 20 minutes and we'll get on to what that involves a little later I guess well absolutely we will obviously did it take you till the last 20 minutes to conceive of this as a sci-fi film or did you think it was sci-fi is it does sci-fi just happen in the last 20 minutes or is the film sci-fi that's before we get into anything what do you think what what's your response to that I mean so um, I think we should just be frank because you know we're not a we aren't a spoiler free discussion podcast so um what Dave's referring to is the bit 20 minutes towards the end where it's revealed that um the the evil villain is making horse people horse people um, which is i guess the point at which it is equisapiens is that's the point at which it is uncontrovertibly is that the word incontrovertible oh, I'm, I'm all right with that i'm all right with that word at which it incontrovertibly is... incontrovertibly isn't it at which there is no doubt that it is sci-fi. Yes, um, absolutely. So, um, and so, I mean, there's two ways of looking at that. First of all, does the rest of the film retroactively become sci-fi because of that incident? And then mm-hmm, in the second mm-hmm. watch, you realise it. Or is it already sci-fi in some way? I would say the point at which I decided it was sci-fi, um, obviously I was looking for when, when does this become sci-fi, um, is as soon as the... Um, what they called a uh, worry-free advert started, which is this cult, not cult. It's not positioned as a cult, but it's not a cult. It is basically it's labor it's camps. A, yeah, well, it's a it's a massive corporate it's a massive corporate endeavor. Yeah, massive corporate endeavor for free, uh, well, unpaid labor. And at that point, I was like, okay, this is sci-fi because this is a dystopian future. You know, when he says, "Oh, I'm working for just commission." 
And at first I just sort of absorbed that, like, okay, that's probably something that would happen in America. Um, but in fact, it's that's already an erosion of workers' rights at the beginning of it. And so it sort of starts off as a with the feel of a kind of a um, comedy slob um, or, or loser film where the main character sort of, you know, he's, he's living in his uncle's uh, garage. He's not really got himself together. It starts off with that kind of aesthetic and feel, but then suddenly it doesn't take you that long, maybe 10 minutes to realize that this is a film about um, later than late capitalism. Later than late capitalism. Brilliant. Is that, I'm trying to trademark that one. Later than late capitalism where... Um, no one has any employment rights. People are in absolute poverty. And it's actually a film about capitalism. So it already is that yeah. kind of challenge because you sort of go, oh, this guy's not pulling himself up by his bootstraps. In fact, it's it's not possible. Well, you know, the question is about how limited opportunities they are in, in such a such world. So yeah, I, I think it's great. And I think as soon as those elements started to crop up, it counted as sci-fi because at least dystopian fiction. The fourth day of violent protests at worry-free headquarters. Protesters say Worry-Free's method of lifetime labor contracts is a new form of slavery. Worry-Free CEO Steve Lift was interviewed on Oprah today. No, conclusively no. Our workers do not sign contracts under threats of physical violence. So therefore, the comparison to slavery is just ludicrous and offensive. We're transforming life itself. We're saving the economy. I mean, we're saving lives. It's all highlighted in my book. I lay out the whole thing. Many of the violent protesters are part of the left eye faction and are identifiable by the black mark under their left eye. There's no employment for many people. Even sweatshops have been replaced by worry-free live-work centers. These places are prisons. People are packed in there like sardines, fed sheep slop, and work to the bone 14 hours a day. So look, it's set in Oakland, California, present day. Oakland's um, a city across the... San Francisco Bay from San Francisco and it's kind of its secondary, you know, it's kind of a secondary city to San Francisco and it's an area that's pretty much undergoing gentrification at the moment. Um, so it's got that a lot of displacement going on there. So and into this mix, there's a young black African-American man, um, Cash, Cassius Green, everyone calls him Cash. Um, and... Um, yeah, you called him a loser. I, interestingly, when I was thinking about that, I was thinking of this as loser slacker, but but it is. He's an economically deprived um, citizen of American, a black uh, economically deprived citizen living in the suburbs, and he's and he, you kind of get the sense that he's been slacking for a while, and he wants to get his shit together. Yeah, yeah. So what he does is goes for a telemarketing job. Um, he gets the job because he does a bullshit CV and it kind of captures the imagination of that person who's employing. And um, in order to become better at his job, um, he adopts a white voice. Um, and that allows him to sell more and more products um, in his telemarketing job um, until he's promoted to a power caller and goes upstairs. In the meantime, his colleagues who are working in this telemarketing area want to organize their labor through a union. Um, and so you get the kind of like the idea of everyone's trying to organize to improve the telemarketing job for everybody except Cash, who realizes he's got a skill and suddenly he can monetize it and he gets, it gets to go upstairs and um, become a very highly paid 
member of the elite of this company and in so doing gets caught up in, as we were talking about, a massive corporate conspiracy, which is going to involve slave labor. So I think that's that's the kind of broad outline of the film. Yes. What which bits do you think really jumped out at you as as before we get to because I think we I think where we're going to end up talking about is the last 20 minutes of the film because even if you talk I about that I actually have, think I actually think those are the least that's the least interesting part of the No, film, I was only going to say I'm going to talk about the last 20 minutes because in a sense they're there to f- everything that's been gathering beforehand is kind of like crystallized in those 20 minutes questions of capitalism and slavery and all of this that and the other but i take but absolutely it, there, there's these little seeds and little bits that are dropped throughout the film that kind of like um before you even get to the rise of the equisapiens yeah i mean it is it's the story about a class traitor ultimately who scabs from his uh, works union which he's a founding member of because he's offered um, a higher role and it's it's about that sort of tension of capitalism does actually work for a vast minority and yeah. there is movement from the um from the lowest class upwards and that sort of specter or the the regulative ideal that actually i i could i could I could set up my own business. I could um, work a bit harder at my job and and do well out of the system. I could move from exploited to exploiter, particularly in America, where it's the the central idea of the American dream is that you can all it takes is effort and work to be able to move move up in that way. What I think is really clever about this film, it's all done through maison scène. The, there's something really eerily off about this. I mean, the thing about the the protests against. Um, uh, worry-free, this uh, slave uh, recruiting organization is obviously the most um, signposted thing. That's the that's sort of like the that's the text rather than the subtext. But there's always like little things along the way that make you kind of question it. Particularly, I mean, the, the point at which I thought, you know, this is really really um, interesting is when he's successful, he's earning all of this money by selling uh, slaves. Ultimately, he's earning all this money and gets the nice car, and then he's got the nice apartment. But the nice apartment is tiny; it's it's a vanishingly small apartment. It's just not a garage. It's just not a garage. Yeah. And he's able to buy commodities, but land is clearly still massively overpriced or massively scarce because he's in this sort of like corner studio apartment in this sort of, sort of ropey old building. There's it's there's not really enough room for him to stand up next to his bed. Um, and I sort of look at that and go, actually, that's not. That's not better than my house, and and my house isn't a great house. You know, it's it, it sort of says in the bio, not the bio, in the blurb. This is a alternate reality, but it, to me, it feels like this could be reality. Say maybe in five years or so. You know, um, I mean, maybe not necessarily the Equisapiens bit, but the idea of increasing <laughs> power to um, a small group of very libertarian uh, entrepreneurs who own the top six tech companies in the world who get praised for innovations that actually take jobs away from people through automating them and eroding workers' rights and stuff like that. There's a brilliant moment where um, it has that bit, the sort of the montage where the main character sort of changes his mind and he's going to uh, blow the whistle and he does blow the whistle and you get this montage of all these interviews and it backfires because everyone's like, oh yeah, this is a brilliant idea, mm. turning people into horses. Mm. Uh, <laughs> this, this is an excellent idea. And it, you know, the, the, the world that they're in has already... You know, the, the battle's already been lost. 
You want to make some money here? Then read the script with a white voice. When people say I talk with a white voice anyway, so why ain't it helping me out? Well, you don't talk white enough. I'm not talking about Will Smith's wife. That ain't white. That's just proper. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about the real deal. Okay, so you like it. Hello, Mr. Everett. Cassius Green here. Sorry to bother you. I mean, you, you got it wrong. I'm not talking about <laughs> sounding all nasal. It's like sounding like you don't have a care. Got your bills paid. You happy about your future. You about ready to jump in your Ferrari out there after you get off this call. Put some real breath in there. Breezy, like, I don't really need this money. You've never been fired. <laughs> only laid off it's not really a white voice it's what they wish they sounded like so it's like what they think they're supposed to sound like like this young blood hey mr kramer this is langston from regal view i didn't catch you at the wrong time did i we've talked a little bit about there about capitalism in america i think it's it it's meditating wider than that for the, on in the first place, so you got a sense, particularly when he goes upstairs, that there's a global effort, the the the, the globalization of this infrastructure that's being put in place by Worry Free. There's a moment where um, he's doing his telemarketing again, and he's talking to a Japanese businessman. Yeah. Um, we perhaps talk about the way in which that's done on the film. We talk a bit more about the style. Um, so you get the idea that, you know, and um, and Cash is telling the Japanese businessman, you know, we can, with our labor that we've got here, the worry-free labor, make twice as many phones for you at, at half the price. Yeah. Which is kind of the spatial dimensions of the film and globalism. You talked about calling what do you that later than late capitalism? Absolutely. But I think there's also a sense of which the past, uh, this uh, the idea of generational slavery, is also being captured up in the film. And even from the very first moment, you you mentioned that the moment when you you start thinking of a dystopian sci-fi was when the first ad appears on TV for Worry Free, and they're all in those bunk yeah. beds. Things in the newspaper after that talk about a new form of slavery. And I think it's always harking back to the idea of slavery in the film and the historical dimensions of that um, yes. sort of like permeate the present absolutely to its core. The very fact that, that um, in order to get on, Cash has to use his white voice. And is it, I mean, it's worth mentioning at this point, he gets he gets given this advice by um, a guy sitting next to called Langston, um, another black guy played by Danny Glover, and his advice there is, you know, use your. I'm going to give you some game now. Use your white voice, and when he tries starts explaining what he means by a white voice to Cash, he starts saying, you know, sound like you've got a good car, you've got your bills paid, you've never been uh, laid off, you know, that you're fitter, happier more productive you know we, we keep returning to mm. that radio head song all the time and it's got that idea that the impact of slavery in the present day is still felt in the economic dimensions of the character's subjectivities and identities within america at that moment so i think those are the two ways in which i'd want to expand the the the, the way in which capitalism is framed here one it's not just downstairs in the in the basement room yeah that's all about america and, and flogging stuff 
to other poorly paid people, to the middle classes. Yeah, you go up in the gold elevator, yeah, and there you're selling uh, multinationally on a global scale, and that in itself is picking up on you know a global slave trade which kicked off the Anthropocene, you know, which kicked off the way in which international trade operated for the West. Welcome, friends. Gather around. Form a semicircle. Tonight, we will have a transformative experience. In those containers, there are broken cell phones, used bullet casings, and water balloons filled with sheep's blood. Cell phones can only work with a mineral coltan, which is found in Africa's Congo. The profit involved in this has created hardship and wars. I will stand here. If you feel so moved, you may throw the items in the containers at me. While I'm standing here, I will be reciting excerpts from the timeless Motown-produced movie entitled The Last Dragon. I will recite those lines that Angela says to Eddie Arcadian, as she leaves him. Let's begin. And in the end, Eddie, you know what? You're nothing but a misguided midget arsehole with dreams of ruling the world. Yeah, and also from Kew Gardens, and also getting by on my tits. And in the end, Eddie, you know what? You're nothing but a misguided midget arsehole with dreams of ruling the world and also from Kew Gardens and also getting by on my tits. So you, you talk about the, the union and, and, and one kind of line of attack of this 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 mire of globalization, capitalism, and 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 racism and slavery it might just be worth just talking about um, Detroit. So Cassius's girlfriend, yep, because there seems to yeah. be on offer another way to critique what's going on here, not better than the labor organization, but parallel to uh, uh, and resonating with, and that's if you like through art. And through activism in the way in which she operates, yeah. Um, Detroit is a performance artist, and and I just like the way in which she. You, the first time you meet her, she's twirling those signs, yeah, yeah. Which it, which is often depicted in movies. And having done this once myself in pouring rain in English weather, yeah, is a pretty pretty horrible way to earn a few bucks, yeah, yeah. But she is turning this into a performance, into an art form. I've got the biggest sign on the best corner. Why is it the best corner? It's because I'm there, yeah? I, I don't even care if somebody goes to the shop. The, the sign is turning in all directions. You couldn't even find the shop she was advertising for, yep, so to speak. Yeah. It's not even clear that there is a shop that she's advertising. So it becomes a real disruptive force to that. Um, the other moment is, and it, this is placed alongside um, when Cassius has to do his performative rap for the white audience at Steve Lifts. She, she's doing this um, performance art in her gallery that she's just opened, a kind of Marina um, Abramovich 
thing where she's a, she's physically attacked. She's physically attacked while reciting um, um, a speech from a movie called The Last Dragon from the from the mid eighties, a, a martial arts movie, but with a black lead, and it's quite famous within uh, black rap and black uh, black culture within America. And people are just pelting her with stuff. And again, Cassius Cash doesn't get it. Yeah, he just doesn't get what's going on here. You know, he says, "Why? Why would you? Um, what, what is it? Why would you demean yourself?" Yeah, why would you demean? But this goes back to he doesn't understand because he wasn't listening. There is an absolutely beautiful scene just before all of this, where he goes. She's just got this space, and she's putting up the art around the walls, and it's these big kind of like constructions of the African continent, really big, made out of scrap metal, and he says. He sort of asks, trying to show interest to his girlfriend, what his girlfriend's up to, yeah? Why did you choose Africa? And she starts on this uh, conceptualizing why she chose Africa. We don't really know what she says because he drifts off. And what the film does in one of its wonderful, of many stylish flourishes, it drops her voice down in the mix and this kind of dreamy music is playing and he's just standing there yeah he's not listening he doesn't care he's got he, he's got no idea what this is about he doesn't even see the relevance of it, it i mean it's a very patronizing patriarchal kind of relationship he's setting up there you know what i mean with this yeah. woman who's actually you know in her own way trying to attack this dominant ideology of globalization racism and capitalism although the, the thing that you've omitted from from that is that the film is also critiquing her attempt for such she uses a white voice during the performance cassia says this it's very bougie what she's doing he does he, he accuses her of basically being in the same position of him he's going she's going to be selling her ghetto art to white bourgeois clients who come through the door yeah and i think you know while he's wrong that what she's doing is anywhere near as bad as what he's doing there's a truth there in that that's also not a path to victory there's no that's not a path to fixing everything you know so cassius's path of you know just working really hard and offering support from the sidelines doesn't work using art to get the bourgeoisie to feel sympathy for you doesn't work the only thing that's presented as working is the revolutionary effort yeah okay okay i i, I hear you but i don't think what she's doing is captured in that way she is a disruptive influence. Uh, admittedly, it's an individualistic disruptive. Yeah, yeah. You've made me think twice on that one. I'll, I'm going to have to look at the film again to be able to respond on that. I think it probably speaks to um, you as someone of your generation because she's very punk. She's very, um, it's, 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 it's very, very much a, aesthetics can be revolutionary and shocking you know she's got always got these earrings that she's making and everything that she does is sort of really powerful but when that sort of comes face to face with capital and this is probably the only film i've seen that uses the phrase the word capital yeah capitalism, yeah, yeah 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 as soon as that comes face to face how can this survive in only by selling itself to the bourgeoisie to be part of their own aesthetic of come come into my my um my apartment look at the look at this this challenging piece of art and it actually in its own way sustains things because it's not a just system well i don't think it's right okay so i have got a response to this uh, we're what we're watching and talking about a film that's doing the very thing that you're saying art can't do and yet we're we're saying it's doing it 
And I think that's the that's why I said it, it's not opposed to the union effort, but runs alongside it and in parallel. Yep. That there is these two tram lines, if you like, two neither of them escapes, right? As because as we're going to see at the end of the film, there's quite a shocking reveal. Yep. But there, there are two escapes there. And we're talking about a film. We're talking about an art art project. Yep. We're talking about something like that. That that can indeed make people think in the same way that a piece of philosophy can make people think. Because the the if if it if it is simply and only uh, practical praxis in the world, yep, i.e. on the streets activism that can change things, that's fair enough. But at the same time, we're gonna have to say, well, we don't need philosophy then, we don't need political writings, we don't need art, we don't need any of these other things that can attack on all different fronts. And that's what, the, to me, the alignment of activism is, attacking on all these fronts at the same time. I just think you're being very generous to her art as it's presented in the film because it's, it has nothing in common with the film itself. So the film, yeah, the, the film's this fantastic effort, make people think all of those things. It does it exceptionally well, whereas this film is a much more accessible artistic medium than what she's doing. You know, it's it's a sort of really cliquey performance art thing. It's a bit cringy what she's doing. It reminded me of being in poetry nights in Manchester, where everyone just tries to do an impression of uh, John Cooper Clark. Okay, <laughs> I don't know. I, I I interpret it as being deliberately not great, but deliberately problematic. I think if there's a hypocrisy involved of when, when you know when you said, look, you're saying that. Um, this is a great film that's doing the thinking thing, whereas in the film, art can't do the thing. I think the hypocrisy might be in the film. Talking about a manager for fucking horse people. No, no. The Equisapian Martin Luther King Jr. But one that we create. One that we control. So you want to you have a false leader for these fucking horse people, but at the same time he works for you? Yeah. Keep shit simple. Well, why the fuck did you choose me? Out of everybody you could have chose, why did you pick me? For what? Cash, cash. You are awesome. I've never seen anyone go through the ranks at Regal View like you did. Hmm? And I want someone like that at Worry Free. Someone hungry. Someone who will fucking shank their own friend in the back if it means getting what they want. Now look. I can see that you're freaked out and that you want to say no. But I wouldn't do that before you see what I'm offering. So, look, I want I think now's the point to talk about when the Equisapiens get introduced into the film. So this is quite near the end, Matt. Yep, as you know. Um, And the way in which it happens is Cassius is invited into the inner sanctum of Steve Lift and, you know, for a personal tete-a-tete. They're going to have a little chat. And this is where the film does so much and tells you so much about its style, because one of the first things he does is, is um, Steve Liff gives Cassius a, a line, of, uh, line of cocaine, or what we think is a line of cocaine, that will come into doubt. The interesting thing to me is what happens is that um, Cassius needs to go for a piss. He gets told to use the jade door. He accidentally goes through the olive door, and that's where he discovers the Equisapiens. And because the film, and I remember this from when I first watched it, yeah, 
because this film is this kind of countercultural, you know, uh, sort of like slightly anarchic film, I thought this was a drugs episode. I thought this, and it's positioned as it could be that he's going through a drugs episode. There's some kind of um, yeah. mind altering substance. He then comes back into the room. He gets, we won't go into all of how he ends up back in the room, but he comes back into the room and Steve Lift says he'll explain everything to him by playing him a video. And there's this kind of, uh, kind of like Michael Gondry, I think it's, who's a filmmaker. It's, 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 you know, it's, they play on his name as, I think it's, they call it Michael Dondry or whatever. This kind of animated thing talking about, you know, since the dawn of time, humans had tools and they modify, but these were modifications of ourselves. We work out, we study to improve our bodies and our minds. Um, but we can do even better than this. You know, humans can be made stronger, more efficient, more productive, more obedient. Yep. And how are we going to do it? We've got this drug, yep, which, um, which if you take, will transform this human body into this powerful equisapien, the future of labor. And now Cassius thinks that powder wasn't a psychedelic, so to speak, and he's been now he's grounded in reality and he thinks he's taken the drug and he's infected and he's going to become it, you know, and he's very, very worried about that. So it's just that the way it's introduced there, it's introduced almost as a tease, as a, as a psychedelic side effect of some drugs being taken. Yeah. And then it's reinforced and, and the, the nature of that drug keeps changing until we get to the very, almost the final scene when he bangs his nose and he starts turning into an Equisapien. And you think that's where the film ends. But it doesn't. Puts up some title cards. There's a pre-credit scene, yeah. Yeah, yeah, a post-credit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, pre-credit scene, yeah. Sort of like a little yeah. coda of when he invades Lyft's house. Now, what does, why does Lyft invite him into that room? It's all about, yeah, that he wants him to be this, what does he put it? This kind of equosapien Martin Luther King Jr., but one that mm. we control. Yeah. Whereas in effect, he be, sort of becomes that kind of figure, but not through the control of Steve Lift. He becomes it because he is transformed through the drug. And it's unclear if that drug took a long time to take effect or something else has happened or, or, or how he's ended up transforming there. So the very revolution in production that he's tried to bring about Lyft is all it's ended up doing is creating a more powerful worker who is perfectly equipped to revolt. And it reminds me of the uh, master-slave dialectic in Hegel almost, which is that you know really the power does lie with the worker because it's the worker that has the, uh, is doing the labor, which is what has value in the system. And if they're able to use their labor to help the owners of the means of production do their thing and earn their money, they can also withdraw that and uh, and use that power to um, to take it back, to take that value back. Which is sort of it, it's it's an oddly positive note because it's such it ends up becoming such a dystopian in tone. You it's sort of in those last sort of like very rapid. Last um, ten minutes of the film, I was sort of thinking, is are they going to go really, really dark here? Are they going to just sort of say, "Look, um, there's no happy ending here." Or are they going to give some sort of hope? And they end up landing on hope. Thanks for calling, man. Yeah, uh, I betrayed you. 
I know it doesn't, it's not going to change anything, but I wanted to say I'm sorry. I acted stupid. I was. Man, hey, we, we good. All right, but all you got to do is just, just do right from now on, man. I tried to change it. I tried to stop it, but this, it's just right in front of their faces. They're turning human beings into monstrosities, and nobody gives a fuck. Most people that saw you on that screen knew calling their congressman wasn't going to do shit. If you get shown a problem, but have no idea how to control it, then you just decide to get used to the problem. And that's why our plan for tomorrow is important. Because if we stop them from crossing the picket line this time, we win. It's a good plan. I just want to just celebrate the visual style of that film. Um, mm. It's just beautifully put together. And a lot of it happens in the in in scene, but it through the montage. Um, you know, when he's on the phone and the desks drop down into the environment in in which he's going to be talking to somebody. So he's actually there present with them while they're having sex, while a woman is upset that her husband is dying. Um, yeah. And when those things happen, it's not a visual trick. It's it, it's a visceral trick. He's he feels his desk moving like there's a like there's a like like he's being caught up in an earthquake, and he feels himself being dragged into this. And it kind of translates uh, the idea of of how attuned he is to be able to do this kind of thing. Like, you know, that mm. he's got an aptitude for it. I think that's brilliant. There's another great moment when. He sits back in his chair in the office and says something like, you really going to stuff all them French fries in your mouth and looks off screen right. And when we cut to a bar where his friend is stuffing uh, a load of French fries into his mouth. I mean, there's just mm. too many. It's just, uh, um, it, it's just a visually stunning piece of art. Yeah, the, the physical effects of the, of the film are great. Like, like the transition, um, when, he, when he's transitioning in terms of um, affluence and you see bits of his apartment transform into better versions of themselves yeah. and, and stuff like that. Some great, great physical effects. Yeah, so I mean, it's really, really all well. happening in kind of in camera, so to speak, you know. Uh, what about you, Matt? Anything um, just to sign off with? To me, one of the many subtexts going on is that um, Lyft is just, just a man. The ultimate way in which that's presented is that he's got a house and they've managed to get there and yeah, you know, they can kill him, or they can um, force him to do things, or what to to sort of dismantle things. You know, but ultimately, if you get to him, you can do something. Now, to me, there's this the moment where um, where Lyft sort of saying everything to Cassius. This is this is what happened. I want you to do this. It's like he's got all of the exposition. He knows our hero knows yeah. absolutely everything about the plan, and he's in a room with uh, with the villain. What is the on, what is the moral thing to do in that situation? What would you do in that situation when you you've been told all of this? It's like being sat. It's like being sat in a room with you know a murderous dictator, and you know I, I think that's the great moral problem. You know, the most philosophical moment in the film is sort of challenging you. What the hell would you do there? Yeah, that's very good. I don't know. It's, it's a great film, and to me, that's that's the most potent problem. You know, a lot of it is about well, what would you do? What would you do if, in the middle of a strike, you were offered a ma major life changing yeah. promotion? Yeah, I agree. Yeah, what would you do? Is the whole you know, it's a lot easier to imagine. You've probably heard me say this before. You know, it's a lot easier to imagine if you're living on a, a on a on a poor street and some dude six houses down has just got promoted and bought a new car. It's a lot easier to imagine. Oh, I could do that. Yep. Then 
thinking about how can we change the power structure of the whole society we were in so you know so none of us are living in poverty yeah, yeah. and th- th- so the question of what would you do when he's offered that job just when the whole activist thing is kicking off yeah I mean, that's in a sense, it's a brave film that it chases that narrative line yeah. to explore those questions. And I know it's you know? not, um, it's not really. I mean, one of the things we're not going to be able to talk about is the manager manager characters on that floor who are all brilliant in their own way and bring back. Memories. Oh, you mean Mister Blank? Yeah. No, no, the, on the on the um, on the first floor that they're on. Oh, uh, right, okay, yeah. Um, but it's like it's. I know the film doesn't really come down one side or the other on this, but it's. To me, it's clearly not a coincidence that that's the point he gets off with the promotion, because that would be a that's one way you can try and break solidarity by having one the most popular person on the floor achieve the stream of, or you can be a power caller by going up to the, the you know the next floor and that sort of thing. He's the guy down the street who's got the promotion and the car that's supposed to make you think I can do that. But but to their credit, to the activist credit, that doesn't work, and in fact, he loses his girlfriend over it. So the film's kind of looks at that but won't buy that yeah i mean what he wants to be is a collaborator so he wants he's okay selling the slaves but he's not really that comfortable as soon as he gets taken too far up this 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 echelons and then finally there's someone saying i'll give you a hundred million dollars if you really get involved in this uh lift just he says to him i saw how you stabbed all of your friends in the back in order to get this get where you are i need someone like you yeah i mean imagine being told that yeah Um, exactly if jeff bezos came to you in your loneliness of loneliness loneliness Uh, no i've got it wrong loneliest lonelier loneliness of what is it loneliness loneliness of lonely loneliness yeah yeah Yeah, i fucked that up that's not gonna not gonna be able to go in i think we're done though